This is the Darcy Giroux Podcast, episode 37. Today we have two guests, Ryan McMakin, senior editor from the Mises Institute, and Corey Morgan, columnist from the Western Standard. We're going to be talking about secession. Corey Morgan and Ryan McMakin. This is my first time having two guests on the Darcy Giroux podcast, so thanks a lot for uh, making this work. Um, Ryan McMakin is, correct me if I'm wrong, senior editor at the Mises Institute? Yes, that's right. And your book that uh, is fantastic is called Breaking Away, The Case for Secession, Radical Decentralization, and Smaller Polities. Um, Also, Corey Morgan is here. Uh, his book is the Sovereigntist's Handbook, Charting the Course to Western Independence. Um, I thought this would be a great opportunity to get two of my favorite, uh, secessionists on and talk about these things. So, Ryan, let's start with you. Um, the case for secession, radical decentralization, and smaller polities. I guess for, give us an overview of your book and, and, you know, the inspiration for writing it. Sure. Uh, well, the book really just grew out of articles I was writing for the Mises Institute, and you can actually see all the original versions of those things at mises.org. That's just our website. Although the book is really expanded, updated, edited, and there's lots of footnotes too, uh, to scholarly sources, historical uh, accounts, and so on to really back up the book. So where did these articles come from? <clears throat> well, the articles were mostly written to address questions about secession um, in the general sense of, well, do, does this happen a lot historically? Is is this a legitimate thing that, that countries go through? What are examples of this? And I especially wanted to look at successful examples and real historical examples of it. I don't know how things are in Canada, but in the United States, for the longest time, anytime you mentioned secession, everyone would just fixate on the the American Civil War. And that, of course, is an example of a failed attempt at secession. And, of course, there are countless books about it in America, maybe... Uh, short of World War One, there's probably more American historians working on the Civil War than, <laughs> well, <laughs> World War II probably has it beat, but it's certainly one of those things that American historians just write about all the time. So I didn't need a book that was going to retread any of that territory. This was a book where I'm like, okay, well, what are historical cases of where secession has been real, and how should we even think about secession? And I think the main issue of Secession, how you should think about it, is that historically secession is everywhere. And I really just begin the book with noting that there are nearly three times as many countries in the world as there were in 1945. And where did all those countries come from? They came from successful secession movements, from decolonization, from the post-Soviet world, which created a bunch of new countries. And that all occurred through secession movements. So I want to look a lot in this book about what that means, where that came from, some examples of of why countries secede and what helps them succeed, and just really providing a more historical and global look at the issue and and really just providing a lot of examples to do away with all this nonsense that most Americans really associate secession with slavery or something like that. But of course, it's a much, much broader and huge historical issue. Of course, the United States was born out of a secession movement. Um, And then, of course, we could look at other important historical examples like the Dutch Republic, a very successful country that itself seceded from uh, the Habsburg Empire and so on. And these these all just show that throughout human history, countries break up into smaller pieces, and this can often lead to a lot of prosperity and success for the seceding party. So I just wanted to look at that in a lot more detail. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Well, it is a hot topic also these days. I mean, um, all all across, well, Western Canada for sure, and definitely a lot of the stuff I follow coming out of the States, they use... Uh, the term national divorce a lot and and it seems like everybody's talking about it so um 
as far as you know the some of these um secession movements being successful what are the advantages of you know these smaller polities and like breaking away into into smaller groups that would have uh you know a a movement like that uh not only arise but then also you know hopefully be successful sure well there's both economic and just uh non-economic and and less measurable advantages and we can discuss some of those as far as economies go uh, i look at the data of is it possible for small countries to succeed uh, because a lot of what the time what you hear is well the only reason the united states is successful economically is because it's large but of course if we look at even richer countries they tend to be smaller countries uh, you'll just look at Western Europe, Switzerland, wealthier than the United States on a per capita basis. It's a small country. It's got about 8 million people, which makes it smaller than the state of Illinois. Uh, Norway has 5 million people, which makes it the same as my home state of Colorado. I, I think a lot of people have no sense of how small a lot of these European countries are and how wealthy some of them are as well. So this idea that Texas, for example, which has 25 million people is the same size population wise as Australia and also has uh, the same uh, GDP per capita. It's enormously productive country with huge amounts of resources at its disposal with coastline, with oil, with all of that. Right. So this idea that, oh, yeah, boy, then they would just be at the mercy of other countries. Well, they'd be no more at the mercy of other countries than, say, Australia. So. Uh, a lot of this is just people fearing anything other than the status quo. And <clears throat> so we can look at that and see, of course, countries that are small can succeed. But even in a more, if we take uh, some uh, quantitative analysis, and authors have done this in a lot of international uh, relations journals, economic development journals, where they look at, well, how do small countries tend to fare? After they secede or they come from larger countries, a lot of analysis of that in the post-Soviet world, right? Well, and it looks like some of the smaller countries that came out of the Soviet Union are actually the most successful. You can think of the Baltics, which, of course, have improved immensely in terms of their standard of living since they broke off from the Soviet Union. And it hasn't been an obstacle to these countries to succeed. And if you adjust for location, the empirical data shows that you are actually tend to be more successful economically as a small country. Small countries, they tend to be more open to trade. They tend to have lower taxes. They tend to be more interested in attracting capital and the talent, most talented people to their countries because they're not big, because they can't just sit back and say, well, well, we'll just close our borders and we got everything we need inside of our country. So those countries tend to be open. They tend to be more liberal in, ter- in the economic sense. And so there's lots of things going for those countries. And that's why I look about look at the advantages of smaller polities and look at large empires, look at China, look at Russia. These are big countries. This is no guarantee of success or openness or anything like that. And so that's just one issue. You can look just really at the data. And of course, you can find small countries that are unsuccessful. Sure, they'd like to point to North Korea and then just forget about Switzerland and say, oh, look, small countries, they all become despotisms. Uh but of course, we can then point to both. And there's no reason to believe that if the state of Florida became its own country, that it would turn into a clone of North Korea. That's just simply not a plausible claim. Uh, but you will hear claims like that and that smaller countries tend to become despotisms. But there's no evidence to point to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I guess one um, question I have or, or one curiosity I have is when we are looking at smaller polities i mean i can imagine there isn't ever an exactly right size or there isn't like a a kind of a, a cookie cutter size you would just take and say this is the optimal size for for a country because there is also uh cultural things that that would influence that and and um now do you touch on that much in the book i'm actually not i haven't gotten all the way through it yet yeah, that's the issue of self-determination that keeps coming up again and again. Now, we're the Mises Institute. We like Ludwig von Mises, the uh, the great liberal economist from the 20th century. And he uses the term self-determination a lot to describe really a population's ability to 
have some control over what happens within that country uh, on its own, based on what the local population wants. Now, he uses that term, but the term is also used wide in widespread context among people who write on international relations and international law and that sort of thing. Self-determination is still very much a term in use, and it recognizes that populations are not all the same and that there are ethnic differences, religious differences, and that people in certain parts of the world have uh, a human right to not be ruled by people from somewhere else that are very, very different. And everybody recognizes this on some level, right? Uh, even Americans who uh, who are in favor of centralized government in North America, they recognize that democracy would not work at the global level where just all humans are going to vote. And then that's how we'll determine policy. Well, they know that, well, we don't just be outvoted by the Indians and the Chinese all the time. And the United States would then have no real self-determination. It would be at the mercy of non-North Americans to determine what policy here would be. And so it's the same thing that led to decolonization, right? There was a feeling that Nigerians have a right to make government for Nigerians and that those laws should not be determined in London. So that is that is the essence of self-determination. And say even if, well, actually, we could use the French as an example here. The Algerians, Algeria was considered a part of France, like they had seats in parliament and all of that. And this was in, say, the 40s and 50s. And they recognize, though, that even if we have some votes in parliament, in the House of Deputies or whatever, we still don't really have self-determination because all of our, our small number of votes would essentially be canceled out all the time by a larger number of people who have a very different cultural background and view of the world and idea of rights and all of that. And so that's what leads then to movements for national liberation and, and ideas of separation and decolonization is even if we had representation in your parliament far away, we would constantly be outvoted. We wouldn't really be in charge of our own affairs in any sort of real sense. And so people recognize that. And if, if people somewhere else have a different religion, they have a, just a completely different worldview, a completely different ideology. People recognize that if you just try and hammer everybody into one unified type of government, that that just doesn't really work, that it leads to serious conflict. And so that's why you need separation a lot of the time. It's why just some big country just doesn't work and you'll need to break it up into smaller pieces in order to avoid constant civil war. And so that's really one of the big benefits of, yeah. uh, of secession and decentralization. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, we are no strangers to having our votes canceled out here in Western Canada. Uh, Corey, do you have anything to say about that? No, I, I just appreciate that breakdown. As you kind of said earlier, my book's more instructional on how to get there as opposed to the the why. But uh, I only touched on two examples because people are afraid of the word secession, but they haven't really thought of it. or They think it has a negative connotation. I, I look at it as more of it's a, an evolution. And uh, I, I use the example of Sweden and Norway and Slovakia and, and uh, the Czech Republic, for example, you know, modern, relatively modern uh, issues where, where countries seceded peacefully and, and are quite successful or increasingly successful today. So uh, I'm just uh, appreciating sitting in and listening to somebody who's got more into depth uh, on that uh, area. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, the the issue of Canada is important too because that's a good example of a country that has a similar cultural background and same language. And so when people say, "Well, if America were to split into say two or three or four pieces, whatever," then they would immediately be at constant civil in a state of constant civil war with each other. That uh, the Republic of Florida would then send a flotilla to then invade uh, Massachusetts, and it would just be nonstop war. And then I asked, well, why has the United States been at peace with Canada since 1815? And that's not that's unclear. Now they say, oh, well, that's because America dominates Canada militarily. Well, there's a lot of nuance to that, too, because, of course, Canada was not a fully independent country until late in the 19th century and arguably right until the 1930s, in which case then. The United States actually would have then been, quote unquote, having to dominate Great Britain well into the early 20th century if that was the source of peace. And that obviously wasn't the case. Obviously, the UK could have held its own in the year 1890 if the US had wanted to conquer Canada. The, the UK would have stepped in to prevent that. Right. 
And so the U.S. chose not to do that, even though they were certainly on a par or perhaps even less powerful than uh, the, the Canadians, the U.K., however you want to say it. So that's that's not really an explanation. The reality, of course, is that people with similar backgrounds, they tend not to fight each other constantly. And so it's just a good example of having an English speaking country next door that somehow has not led to constant war. And if and if it was just a matter of the U.S. Uh, dominating Canada militarily, how come the Canadians aren't sending like cells of terrorists into the U.S. to uh, undermine our our uh, our despotic domination of our neighbors to the north, right? That doesn't happen either. They choose not to to fight us on any level. So I mean, it's just it's just easy to pr- to prove these uh, constant predictions to disprove con- uh, predictions of constant civil war. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is. It's it's actually hilarious uh, when you when you frame the arguments against it this way. Uh, you know, it's actually it's actually. Uh, pretty funny to think that uh, those those are some of the best arguments people come up with um so we i mean canada also is not uh you know is no stranger to secession movements i mean the french in canada have historically you know a few times come pretty close to to leaving canada and also um you know some of the parts of the west like british columbia uh, joined canada relatively late in the game uh, same with same with Newfoundland. I mean, these are these were additions after the fact. There's no reason that they wouldn't be able to, you know, walk away the same way they walked in, right? Well, and of course, and, and why would they not want to have relatively free trade with <laughs> the country they leave behind? All of those cultural uh, bonds, language matters a lot uh, in in terms of maintaining those bonds. And yeah, I. Why would we expect those relations to be any different than U.S. current U.S. relations with Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the U.K.? Is there's just no reason to assume that. If any, and actually, they work together all the time in terms of foreign policy and such. And sometimes the the U.S. is quite pushy in that regard, but sometimes it's just people recognize that there's an advantage to sticking together. Uh, with other countries that that you know you're going to have common interests with. And that's a point I make in the book as well, because that is a big question is like, well, if the U.S. splits up into two pieces or four or five, then China will immediately invade North America. And of course, why? Why do you need a unified federal system in order to just simply have a defense pact among these countries? We all know that if China invaded vancouver the united states is not going to sit around and say well that's canada i guess you know you're on your own i mean basically north america is a fortress and if you're some you're some major power that invades north america then everyone in north america is going to be alarmed and there's just an unwritten union there essentially a defense pact and the same would be true of any new group of american states they are not none of them are going to want to have some foreign global power get a foothold in North America. And there's no it's just simply not plausible to think that mass the Republic of Massachusetts is going to invite the Chinese to invade Tampa Bay uh, after that happens. What would be the advantage of that? There is none, especially when you look at the advantages of trade with Florida versus trade with Canada. There's uh, the, you don't have to worry about these countries suddenly deciding, well, I'm not your ally anymore and I'm going to cut you off uh, in terms of trade. We're going to embargo your state. Find me examples of that happening with countries that have similar cultural backgrounds and you're going to have a pretty tough time of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I guess uh, you know, Texas is an interesting example in in the US also where I mean it's been part of uh, also an independent country, but it's been part of uh, you know, six different countries in its history, in its its present shape, basically. Or am I am I wrong on that? Yeah, that's the that's actually the origin of that uh, that chain of uh, amusement parks called Six Flags. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Oh, up yeah, there. yeah. But it's based on the idea that yeah, Six Flags have flown over this part of the country, and uh, yeah, that that is kind of the origin of that. Oh. And so yeah, um, and people also forget that New Mexico was part of either Spain or Old Mexico for longer than it's ever been part of the United States. Uh, and also that English only became the majority language in New Mexico in the 20th century, probably around 1920. 
And so there are big cultural divisions here, places that have long histories outside the United States. Actually, I think the United States would have been wise to just keep Texas as a buffer state between it and Mexico. Just think how different the discussion around immigration would be today if Texas, an independent republic, lay between the United States and Mexico. Uh, it would just be a completely different conversation. And I think if that had been allowed to happen, we would have seen how countries uh, just tend to ally themselves with each other short of a specific and written political union. Because, of course, that happens all the time, informal political unions. And that's what America would continue to be. And, uh, yeah, people need to just keep that in mind. And then, of course, the United, the Western U.S. just... It's different. It it has a different history. It has different ties. We have I don't see how here in Colorado I'm supposed to believe that I have some sort of deep union with New Yorkers or people in Vermont. I just don't. And I probably have more in common with people in Saskatchewan than I have with people in some parts of the northeastern United States. Um and I have actually been there and so I'm not just making that up. Uh it's not it's just not a big difference. Whereas when I walk through, um, say, Brooklyn, uh, I don't, it, I, I don't feel a bond with those people so, yeah. at all. So I mean, these are just issues that need to be considered. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Now, uh, one interesting chapter in your book is on uh, the fact that uh, before Roe versus Wade, uh, abortion policy was a state and local matter, um, and and I think in a broader sense. Um, that that's a you know a really important conversation on the topic of of culture, especially on issues that are difficult issues like abortion, where um, yeah, it should be relegated to smaller groups and and to different uh, where you know th- those cultures can can make those decisions um, in and not have uh, you know different laws and rules imposed on them from from up above, right? Yeah, the third part of the book looks at what if uh, the Americans remained in just a loose confederation that was basically just a, a a free trade zone and a defense pact, right? What would we ha- what would we what would we have? And that actually is largely what the U.S. looked like in the mid nineteenth century. And you look at issues like not just abortion, uh, which did very much exist in the nineteenth century. That's a point I make. In the book is that there was plenty of abortion in the 19th century, uh, and it really started to take off in the 1840s and so, and it didn't really get fought back into what we think of it in terms of the mid 20th century until the very late 19th century and early 20th century when the American Medical Association really just started uh, lobbying to limit it. But there were no federal abortion laws outside of you can't send abortion stuff in the mails because federal law basically only granted federal power to regulating the males. So if you wanted to advertise in magazines, uh, you wanted to open a shop that offered uh, whatever it was people were using for abortion back then, and and such things certainly did exist, it was all state and local stuff, and it varied considerably from place to place. And it never even occurred to anyone. Uh, Yeah, Obviously, there were some people who wanted, just like the same sort of people wanted nationwide prohibition of alcohol. It it occurred to, to a minority, but most people recognize that by law, you just can't just make up a bunch of federal laws. You might need a amendment to do that. But that was back in the days when people naively recognized that if you wanted to actually just come up with a bunch of federal laws, you're going to have to change the Constitution. Then we, we decided to start ignoring that in the 1930s. But back then, it was like, we can't pass federal abortion laws because it's not allowed. And the same was true with immigration law. Federal immigration law did not exist until the 1880s. And so what you found was that you could go from place to place. You could find very different laws from place to place. And people just recognize that that's just the way it is, that there's cultural differences from place to place. And what it also meant was as a voter, as a person in country A, you could choose to live in a place that reflected your values. And if they didn't, you could move to another place. That reflected different values. And it was recognized that democracy would tend to only work at a more localized level, right? We've got these people that have certain common economy, values, religion, all of that stuff. And they're gonna, there's gonna be a certain flavor to our ideas of human rights and politics here. And that's gonna be different 
from another place. And it was recognized that that's just the reality. There wasn't this attempt to impose this uniform uh, worldview on everybody. And that helped considerably. And that would help keep peace among people today. It's a good thing that abortion is moving more toward a decentralized uh, type of lawmaking. The same should happen with immigration. The same. Sh- there's even a chapter in here on how actually uh, state defense, state national guard, state militia should be empowered more uh, on a regional level rather than a federal level. And so, all of those issues, which were common in the 19th century, should really be revived because they help uh, have people. M- have more self-determination over what politics looks like in their particular part of the country. And if you don't like it, you can move. Otherwise, you have no choice. If there's just uniform federal law, you have nowhere to escape to unless you go to a foreign country. And then you're a thousand miles away from your family. You might have to learn a new country. That's assuming some other country will even take you. So these are all issues that people need to consider. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Ryan, I know uh, you said you couldn't go much longer than half an hour. Uh, Corey, I want to give you an opportunity to ask uh, Ryan the last question before he has to go. Uh, boy, I'm just more listening rather than having questions. I, I, I appreciate uh, getting a, a breakdown, though, of that difference. I mean, there's people historically have felt the way to deal with diverse views is to centralize power and try and mash them together. And it's so a failure, whether it's the Soviet Union or the British Empire or anything else, it, it's the irony, but the more you decentralize, the better the chances those people are going to get along. But I, I guess I'd ask, like the American system has, compared to Canada, still a great deal of much more state autonomy and uh, ability to, to make their own laws than Canada does. Uh, in a sense, though, does that hinder than any actual uh, secessionist type movements going on down there? Well, I haven't seen any that are highly uh, likely in the coming years. These are sorts of things where we're just trying to get the discussion going. And a lot of progress has been made, I would say, not to the point where anybody's writing it into law. But I think the way you can tell that it's moving in that direction, however, is from a couple of different things that have happened. One is COVID. So with COVID, suddenly people learned that the state government you live under matters quite a bit. And who is your governor? Who's running your state government? Suddenly, whether you're allowed to keep your business or not could depend largely on which state are you in. Are you going to be forced to get vaccines? That could be depend heavily on what state are you in. And and big people noticed big differences in flavor then between, uh, say, the state of Florida and the state of California. Right. Those probably the two most extreme examples, but differences there as well. And so that, I think, woke people up to the idea that state government matters. I used to teach political science for a number of years at the college level, and it was amazing how many people didn't even know that states have their own legislature and where most of the laws they live under were passed. And they didn't realize that was a thing. They couldn't tell the difference between Congress and the state house. So uh, I think people are starting to, to figure that out. The other issue, too, is people are figuring out that this whole nullification thing works fairly well. Uh, Now, it's the left who's led the way on that, on the marijuana thing. And the left said, you know what? Yeah, you've got your federal laws on marijuana. But you know what we're going to do? We're just going to start passing state laws that say we're not going to enforce your federal laws. And I live in Colorado where the state constitution was changed to say no agent of the state will be able to enforce federal marijuana laws. And so that that was it. Now, of course, once that happened, then the federal government, they they got all, oh, we're going to enforce these laws anyway, and we can come in at any time and do this. Well, guess what? They never actually did it. Yeah, they managed to pick and choose a few things like big time dealers and like huge warehouses and people who were violating the state laws. Because, of course, there are still state limits on what you can do with marijuana, just like on alcohol or anything. Right. And but what we did find was that, gee, when states stop going along with what the feds want, the feds don't have the personnel. They don't have the ability to just simply keep doing what they were doing because they usually were getting willing compliance and help from local police. And the FBI just simply doesn't have the resources to enforce law day to day like they would surely like to. And then you're also just sending the message where if everybody in Colorado is just under the impression that marijuana is legal, what happens when the feds come in and then just start arresting people? 
that strikes people as crazy, as unjust, as, hey, I thought this was legal. How come the federal government is arresting people for this stuff? So that you that's just contains within it a lot of pushback. Now, the problem that the right has in America is that at least until recently, conservatives and right winger types, they always would buckle under and do whatever the federal government said. So um, they on drugs, even though the drug war has always been blatantly unconstitutional, even according to the standards of most conservatives, they're like, well, you know, the feds say it's illegal, so I guess you can't do it. If you don't like the law, change the law. You can't just not follow the law. So there's always been the sort of the simping spinelessness among conservatives in America to always do what your federal overlords say. So while there was some discussion about, well, we're not going to do Obamacare, we're not going to enforce that in our state, or we're not going to enforce federal laws, you would get a lot of blowback, especially from old timers who thought that, you know, we wave the American flag and the U.S. Constitution is the law of the land and we do what people in Congress say. Those people are dying out. And I think younger people are recognizing the injustice uh, that is the federal government. And so they're starting to get much more of a hearing. So just writing for Mises.org and and get and hearing back from these people, I'm hearing a lot more openness now. They're recognizing that simply ignoring federal law or refusing to enforce it works. Uh, as the drug issue has shown, I'm seeing a lot more willingness. And some laws have even been passed, like in Missouri has a pretty strong law saying, yeah, we're not enforcing federal laws on guns anymore. And the feds, of course, are freaking out about that. But so far, they're not making a whole lot of headway. You had issues where Arizona was trying to construct its own border law. I think if the Republicans had won that gubernatorial race, that wall would be just getting bigger and bigger and that people would just be expect accepting that, oh, yeah, we can do what we want in terms of enforcing uh, immigration law. We do what's good for the state of Arizona. We don't take orders from the feds. So you are getting real pushback there. It's just not to the point of anybody drafting a declaration of independence yet for a state. But people are certainly much more open to local uh, autonomy in some sense than was the case just five years ago, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, Ryan, tell the listeners where they can uh, follow you and and, uh, find your work. So you can certainly read my articles. I usually have at least one article on the front page on any day. Uh, That's at mises.org. That's the Mises Institute. And you can buy the book, Breaking Away, you can buy it on Amazon. You can go to Mises.org and buy it uh, on uh, in our store. And you can, of course, if you just want to read it on PDF, you can just get it for free uh, at Mises.org as well. It's just posted there in PDF format. And it's it's called Breaking Away in case you're at uh, Amazon. Uh, but uh, yeah, check it out. Uh, but you can just read any number of articles. I mean, I've added really to what's in the book since it was even published with additional uh, new ways of looking at secession. So if that's your topic, that is one of the main things we cover at the site is decentralization, radical decentralization, that sort of thing. So you might find it pretty interesting. Uh, I am. And uh, a lot of the listeners are definitely big fans of the the Mises Institute and the work they do. Actually, my Twitter feed uh, blew up with the news that Jeff Deist was leaving. And it's all I, I had to get off Twitter. It's all I saw in there for a couple days. So um but anyway, yeah, don't expect any ideological changes, I think, with uh, Jeff's departure to do different things. Yeah, uh, it's uh, I don't think the flavor of the articles will change at all. No, understood. I, I, I'm, uh, uh, I was only, I only meant that it looks like a lot of people are, uh, you know, he was he was very highly thought of in, in our circles. Sure. Yeah. Yes. And rightly so. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and Ryan, feel free to stick around um, if you like. I'm going to switch gears now. Ryan McMakin, who you've been listening to here, is the senior editor at the Mises Institute. The Mises Institute has generously given the guests of the Capitalism and Morality Calgary Seminar copies of How to Think About the Economy, a book by Per Byland, who will be speaking at the Calgary event. The Capitalism and Morality Calgary Seminar is taking place Saturday, May 20th, 2023, at the Danish-Canadian Club in Calgary. Corey Morgan, who we'll talk with more in the second half of the show, will also be there, where you'll be able to get your hands on his book, The Sovereignist's Handbook. Go to capitalismandmorality.com 
or follow the link in the show notes page and use promo code DGPODCAST15 for 15% off the ticket price until April 20th. Corey, what, uh, give us your best pitch for uh, Western separation or even Alberta, Alberta itself separating away from Canada. Yeah, well, the best pitch is that we're, we're living in a, a an obsolete system, essentially. I mean, this was designed as a centralized type of government. I, I cover that kind of in the introduction to the book. The, the Constitution made sense when you had 85-90% of your population all in central Canada, and uh, we're looking at 5% out on the prairies and in the West, and, and you know, why would we model our system to worry about that tiny minority out there? Uh because we can't change that system realistically or substantively from within, though some people keep saying that, we have to look more radically. We have to basically tear it down and rebuild it if we want to see it. Um, I'm old enough. I'm afraid, you know, we've gone through Meech Lake and Charlottetown. I was young at the time. Those were legitimate efforts to, in my view, still only make minor changes relatively to the Constitution, and they completely failed. And with the formula that we have now, it's not going to change. It's not going to change with a... Uh, with one province or even a few provinces wanting to change something because there's different interests across the country. And the formula for change basically means you have to have a unified consent across the country to make the change. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think as, you know, as, as we mentioned earlier, as Ryan mentioned earlier, you know, there is this, this um, effect in Western Canada with, I mean, we, uh, we know who has won an election by the time the polls close in Ontario. I mean, it's, and and there is that feeling that um that feeling of alienation that that anything um that our voice is not heard and and that's a good example of it in the west yeah and if we if we had a decentralized government like Ryan was talking about or something like I, I go into the swiss model for example in my book a bit things like that i'd be more accepting of it if the federal government's only managing national defense the mail service and uh currency perhaps i mean still important things that can impact me but uh, for all of the more you know direct uh, governance issues, those are going to be more local and, and in my control. But as it stands, yeah, when I have a federal government that's so intrusive and has their fingers into every aspect of my life and my say on changing that government really doesn't mean anything when, when the elections are over, as you said, before they even cross the, those borders, uh, I can't abide by that. Plus, it's, it's, it's you know, just by nature, uh, the elections are going to come out and, and put in governments in place that favor central canada if there's differences in interests it's not personal it's just the way it is and uh it has to change or it will get more bitter more fragmented and we could start seeing things getting more more uh radical than, than just trying to change things through referenda or independence movements yeah yeah for sure um it it does seem like the more powerful a federal government the more the more power they have the more control they have over things it only serves to increase division between people because then you have to you have your allegiance has to fall on one side of the political spectrum or the other or else you are out of the game entirely so you do it's like you do have to pick that side and it's it's like uh it is like an kind of inherent fault in uh in democracy itself really yeah and we don't we just don't have uniform thought and i mean even in a small area there's going to be differences in thought which, you know, with you and I would agree, well, that just means we need less government in general. But uh, just, just looking at it from a regional basis, the, the differences we, we have, as, as Ryan sort of spoke of, you know, as, as a person in Colorado, he doesn't feel highly connected to people in New York. And, and likewise, I, I did a lot of American work. I felt more comfortable working with Texans than uh, Pennsylvania, where I spent oh, the better part of a year working up in there and through New York. Nothing against them. It's just they're, they're very different cultures and, and attitudes. And we're going to have different demands or wants or needs. And it's ridiculous to imagine that people with that, that vast difference between each other are going to be comfortable under all the same legislation. So people in Ottawa are most definitely different than people in Victoria. And boy, Newfies are certainly a breed all their own. I'm surprised Newfoundland stayed in Confederation as, as long as it has as a, as a recent entrant. Uh, but authoritarians and centralized government type people just don't seem to understand. They just seem to feel if we can cram it in and crush the will enough, we'll make everybody get along. 
and it doesn't work. I mean, all you're doing is pressuring and pressuring and pressuring, and eventually that balloon pops, and you make it much worse. You know, we've seen that historically. And we're still in the trend of centralizing, pushing further. We're watching, you know, we keep, oh, well, you've got remedy through the courts. No, you don't. Uh, the Alberta courts, for example, said the carbon tax was unconstitutional. And then the federal court said, well, too bad. Yes, it is. We got C-69 right now. The Alberta court said it's unconstitutional. I will guarantee you the federal court's going to come in and say, no, no, that bill is perfectly fine. We don't have remedy. And uh, we do have a government that's ideologically driven that doesn't act in the interest of, of outlying provinces. And we need to change that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so your book focuses on Western independence. Now, um, what what would be the argument for uh, you know? Because there's also there's also the idea of Alberta independence, and and you know, I, I guess what's the best argument for uh, the West to stay cohesive uh, and separate away from Canada and not split into you know four four or five uh, smaller uh, polities yet. Sure. And, and actually just to, to add, I, I actually had uh, some people in New Brunswick who bought a, a number of copies because there's a, a budding movement starting out there and, and the book can be applied across, you know, it's, it's instructional in a sense on, on political organization and things like that. Uh, so it could be applied to just about anywhere. Uh, one of the things, I mean, recent polling when it came to support for Western independence, it does become greatly stronger when questions are asked different ways. Like it's Alberta all by itself. There's, there's a, a good degree of support, kind of a 25% core support sits there. When you add in Saskatchewan and BC, that, that blossoms a lot bigger. People like that concept a lot better. Uh, I think a lot of it is, is the comfort and economics. It's things that Ryan sort of dispelled when he spoke, like you don't have to be large to be secure or economically uh, viable. But those are myths we have to break. Uh, you know, he, he also spoke to, uh, and that's some of the arguments I counter in the book, because I, I try to arm a, an advocate for independence, you know, with some answers to commonly uh, posed arguments against it. One of which is, oh, well, BC would, you know, if it was Alberta by itself, BC would just cut you off and you'd be isolated and, and you know, you'd starve to death and blah, blah, blah. You know, it, it's shallow. It's wrong. It's not going to happen. Um, but people make that case constantly. And I would rather reason through the casing with a decentralized government and just negotiating if BC didn't go. I mean, they would hurt themselves just as much as us if they tried something like that. We will move on. We'll be fine. But if BC were with us, well, then that takes that part of the equation. But the danger, which it takes more discussion, is make sure that if it's going to be a larger unit, which is fine, the new system is a decentralized one. I mean, if we broke off and then just embraced the, the Westminster parliamentary system out in the West. Well, we've just got a smaller version of the same broken system. So, because there are differences between mainland BC, interior BC, Edmonton, Regina, very different people, uh, you know, a lot of commonalities, but differences. So you're still going to have to need that system that's going to address those regional differences. And uh, you have to start thinking about how you're going to look at a post-independent sort of world. Yeah, yeah. So, um and so another thing that's been happening in Alberta, I mean, uh, Danielle Smith has been, uh, you know, fairly active in nullification type of things like uh, what Ryan alluded to. Um, I, I guess, uh, let me think. Well, the one of the big ones is the the firearms one. Like they had said, we're not going to enforce these uh, the federal gun stuff. I, I'm not even sure what it was exactly. Could you explain some of that to me? Sure. I mean, the federal government through uh, C21. Bill that seems to be growing and shrinking as the government tries to see how much they can get away with uh, is a bill designed to seize firearms. It uh, has frozen the transfer of, of uh, handguns, which makes them completely worthless uh, aside from the hands of the owner. Though they were pretty close to it with the amount of regulation on them already. Uh, and then, of course, they just threw in an amendment. You know what? While we're at it, we're going to go after all the semi-automatics and we're going to uh, go after these things. They kind of burnt their fingers and backed off. And then just yesterday, actually, uh, the big report on the, the Nova Scotia shooting came out and it recommended the banning of all uh, semiotic firearms as well. Like the government's going to come after them. There's no doubt. And they failed. They're ideologically driven. They failed with the gun registry in the 90s and tried to – the goal of the registry was later seizure. Let's not beat around the bush. They claim otherwise it's baloney. You can't take them if you don't know where they are. Step one is a, regist a registry. Now they're trying a different move. They're trying to incrementally take them. 
So they'll keep doing it through orders and counsel, and they'll do it through incident by incident. You notice the government always announces these after usually an American tragedy, but a shooting tragedy. So when everybody's worked up, then they'll throw in another another ban. But the province of Alberta and Saskatchewan have both said, well, come and get them. We're, we're not helping you with this. We're not going to put money into this. It's our jurisdiction to fund the police, to give them broad direction on what their, their areas are going to go. If you want those firearms, you're going to have to find a way to do it because because we've got better things to do with our forces and with our bureaucracy than to try and track down these and go door to door and and seize them because that's what it'll have to come to. And uh, they're drawing a line in the sand. Uh, Smith has, and and I think uh, Scott Moe has been more successful with it because he's not quite so embattled with his local uh, population as, as Premier Smith is right now uh, heading to an election. But uh, when push comes to shove, they're saying, bring it on. And it's interesting because what is the government going to do? If they say, we're going to ban all the semi-automatic rifles. Okay, well, Alberta's probably, man, that's that, that's got to be getting into the high hundreds of thousands of them that are out there. They don't know where they are. We've got firearm owners who are very disinclined to volunteer to turn them over, despite whatever buyback plans they want to put out there. So even if they had 50% compliance, you know, well, now you got about a half a million or a quarter million Non unknown firearms that are now technically illegal. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to knock on doors? Are you going to spy on people? Are you like how on earth are you going to get them? Especially if the provincial government isn't cooperating. Uh, so if the feds, you know, send extra RCMP officers in, well, as a supporter of independence, I say bring it on. I mean, this will bring us the referendum conditions in a week. Uh, but it puts them in a rock and hard place. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens with that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now you were also um, the did you were you the founder of one of the independence parties that here in Alberta? Uh, not one that's currently existing. So I mean, I, I founded the Alberta Independence Party way back in the uh, late nineties when I was in my my twenties. We went into an election and did like all the rest of the independence parties. Came in with a bunch of fanfare and noise and enthusiasm. Hit the wall at election time and then ripped ourselves to shreds with infighting and vanished from the political scene. Um, and we just see that repeating over and over and over. Even today, the Independence Party of Alberta is falling apart. The Western the Wild Rose Independence Party is falling apart. Um, they, they keep doing it. So uh, th- there was a new Alberta Independence Party. It was Dave uh, Borkman kind of put it together. But it, it had no direct relation to, to the one I founded back in the 90s. So you've but obviously founded a political party in the past on this. Um uh, wrote a book on political strategy to bring us to some form of independence. Um, so, from your perspective, let's 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 take a look at uh, Premier Smith and the Alberta Sovereignty Act. I mean, how what what if you were delivering a grade on this from your perspective? What would it look like? <laughs> well, I, I guess I'd give it a C. I'd like to see a little more strength and a little more more courage and a lot of those issues, but it, it still prods into some of those areas i mean we've talked about this sort of thing for 30 years that's the stuff that i got sick of and you know got me into starting an independence party because one of the things that defused us back then was the release of what was called the alberta agenda the firewall letter which was essentially the sovereignty act it's just saying we got these provincial powers let's use them uh the the pension plan the police force uh a, a number of items but uh it sounds like it's turned into a toothless tiger already uh, you know, you don't hear her talk about it any longer. Uh, the socialists in town are, are protesting the, any possibility of forming a provincial pension plan. They're, they're, uh, the, the police unions have been working very hard to defend the, the presence of the RCMP here. And uh, unfortunately, the Smith government's too busy struggling to maintain government and fighting among itself uh, to, uh, to really stick to the things in the Sovereignty Act that need to be done. I'm just kind of hoping... They'll move on to those things post-election, assuming they maintain government, because then you have four years to work on this and uh, get that fight going. We need the fight with Ottawa. We've got to quit backing down. I don't care if Ottawa's pissed off. I want them pissed off. Let's tell, you know, bring it on. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so your book on on strategy, like what are the key takeaways in, in the book that uh, people should be doing to uh, to move towards independence? and? Is it is it all political strategy, or is there other things that we can do to change the culture around uh, this conversation? Yeah, well, there's a couple answers there. I mean, the one prime thing, I guess, to start with, those that, and that's on the political end, is I say stop 
spawning independence parties. Cut it out. You're losing a lot of energy. You're losing a lot of time. And they chronically fail. Hey, it wasn't just because mine went and hit against the wall. You know, we can list half a dozen in a few minutes that have hit against the wall. <laughs> go anywhere. Uh, they, they don't, it's not a, you know, terrible thing. I don't want to undercut the efforts people have made very genuinely. And they've helped spread the word for independence and things like that through those parties. But they inevitably fail. You got to work and look at what we've got within the system and how we can do it. And we have the tools if we utilize them. And most of those tools mean political involvement, party involvement, but it means being involved with the party in power, not constantly spawning these independence parties. And part of the problem, too, is an independence party is instantly a single issue party. And it doesn't matter how great your policy book is. That's all people can talk about if that's what's in the name. I know that from running in two different campaigns on that. You get to the door, that word comes up, that's it. The discussion's all on that. But people are still concerned about education and policing and, and health care many other things and you can't talk about them as long as you're fixing on independence the other thing is, is is yes bringing it more out of the political realm and into the kitchens that's a lot of what the book talks about it talks about independence ambassadors you know talk at the family dinner but it also warns you on the personal note hey don't become the amway fanatic don't annoy the hell out of your family and, and don't hurt yourself for the sake of politics you know back off when you need to back off take a break when you need to take a break but you're Battleground can be the workplace at the car, at the water cooler. It can be at events. It can be talking to your regular bar crowd over at the pub at, at the front of the bar and you know, winning those converts one by one. So necessarily through a party or an advocacy group, and those things have their role. Member having a discussion with them, and uh, the book sort of instructs towards that, and and. Um, Showing again how you can make a good case and uh, uh, you know potentially spread the word with, without direct political involvement or with. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Okay, well, uh, you are going to be at our Capitalism and Morality 2023 Calgary event, and um, looking forward to seeing you in person. And uh, I'm hoping you bring all these uh, these ideas and stuff to the the panel that you're going to be sitting on. Um, yeah, look forward to seeing you there. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It should be quite uh, fun and informative. Yeah. Uh, tell the listeners where they can uh, find your work and, and follow you. Sure. Well, for the, for the book, of course, it's the Sovereignist Handbook. You can search it out on Amazon. It's there in digital form or physical. Or if you want to get direct from me, which you know saves on some Amazon fees, it's at gvlbooks.com. Uh, and of course, I'm always out there ranting and raving on uh, the Western Standard uh, through my columns and uh, Epic Times uh, as well. I, I have that weekly show on Wednesdays that comes out and it's now started to be broadcast on the Cowboy Network and the Wild TV and, and something else, actually. So, yeah, there's lots of areas to hear me going on. Yeah, well, it's uh, yeah, it's awesome to see you you out there uh, doing this and uh, really want to congratulate you on all the success you've been have, having on it also. No, thanks. It's been fun. Thanks for coming on, Corey. That was Ryan McMakin, senior editor at the Mises Institute, and Corey Morgan, author of the Sovereignist's Handbook. The Darcy Giroux Podcast is a production of capitalismandmorality.com. If you like the Darcy Giroux Podcast, subscribe on Substack. Substack.